John chapter 10, verse 16. The title of this message is One Flock, One Shepherd. In the context of Jesus declaring he is the door and he is the good shepherd, we enter into his discourse at verse 16. The Lord Jesus himself says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, as we come to hear your word, as we just heard updates from two faithful under shepherds, Lord, we ask for your blessing upon Jess, and we ask for your blessing upon Bo and the Beckendams. Um, And Lord Jesus, what we need most right now is to faithfully hear your voice. You are the great shepherd of the sheep. Lord, as Peter once said, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? And so Lord, I just ask that you would be glorified this morning, seen as you truly are. We want to hear the voice of our shepherd. Thank you for your word through which your spirit still speaks today. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, as I said, Pastor Bo did a bang-up job the last two weeks, faithfully presenting to us who our good shepherd is, who Christ is. And I just encourage you again, listen to that message last week. But as we find ourselves in the middle of John 10, I want to remind us of who this good shepherd is. In Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, we have a shepherd who speaks. We have a shepherd who leads his people, who feeds his people, who is not just any kind of shepherd, but he is truly a good shepherd. We have a shepherd who is good because he lays down his life for his people. And not only does he own his sheep, but as Bo taught us, he twice owns his sheep. He fights for his sheep. He does not leave his sheep, but he gathers them up and he cares for them. And he knows not just in a head knowledge facts about them, but in love, he knows intimately his sheep and he pursues them and he goes after them. And so it is in the echo of all these glorious truths that we find ourselves midway through verse 16. And this morning, walking through the verses 
of John 10 we're in, we're going to see not only is our shepherd good, but we truly belong to him. We're going to see there is one flock of this shepherd. And indeed, there is only one shepherd. And that is good news for us. And if you are in Christ, I want you to know, no matter what you feel at this moment right now, the truth is you belong. You are united to him and you are united to his people. We're going to see that there is one flock and one shepherd. Look with me at verse 16 as we see the unity of Christ's church. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice So there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock and one shepherd. At this point in Jesus's discourse, uh, he is making a point that uh, as I was studying this morning, uh, he's using a wordplay in the original language, okay? And you'll be able to hear it if you listen to these words. So the word for shepherd in Greek is uh, poime, poimain. Now Jesus, he says at the end of verse 16, one flock, one shepherd, he says, mia poimne, ice poimain. Poimne, poimain. He's making a point. When you use wordplay in this way, it's to a, draw attention to a key truth. And I want you to notice what the very beginning words of chapter 10, verse 1 are. Jesus begins by saying, truly, truly. And you guys know what that word is in Greek, even if you're not, if you don't recognize it at first, because it's how we end all of our prayers. We say, amen, amen. Jesus begins by saying, amen, amen. And he closes some of these truths by saying, poimne, poimen. He's saying these things all hold together. Truly, truly, there is one flock and there is one shepherd. As Bo said last week, if we ever wonder, where am I in, the, in this book? We find ourselves, unless we're an ethnic Israelite, we find ourselves in verse 16 of chapter 10. We are the other sheep that weren't of the fold. We're the Gentiles that were brought into the church. And 2,000 years removed from this, uh, we lose some of the force of this, but this was an enormous deal at the time. There had to be church councils of what do we do now that there's Gentile believers? Can there be a Jewish church and a Gentile church? No, the Lord Jesus said, there is one church. There is not the Jewish church and the Gentile church, but there is one church. And so this truth holds today that in this world, there is one true church of Christ, the church of Christ. There is not a black church and a white church. There's not a rich church and a poor church. There is only the church, those who have been bought with the blood of Christ. There truly is only one church of Christ and the only shepherd of the church of Christ 
is Christ himself. There's a story of George Whitfield, that evangelist of the 18th century who was given a little bit to fancy in his preaching. He was an incredible preacher. Uh, the most famous actor in England at the time that Whitfield was alive said he would give everything he had just to be able to say, oh, the way that George Whitfield said, oh. And there's one account of Whitfield preaching from the balcony in Philadelphia where he cried out to the people listening to his sermon. And he said he was able to ask Father Abraham a question. And he said, Father Abraham, who have you got in heaven? Any Episcopalians? Father Abraham said, no. Any Presbyterians? No. Any Baptists? No. Have you any Methodists there? No. Today we might say, any non-denominational hipsters? No. No. Why, who have you then? We don't know those names here. All that are here are Christians, believers in Christ, men and women who have overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. Oh, is this the case? Then God help me. God help us all to forget party names and to become Christians in deed and in truth. Does this truth that there is one church, one flock, does this truth shape how you think and how you feel as you think of the bride of Christ? as you think of coming on a Sunday morning to this local assembly of believers, that there is only one church, does it shape how you think and how you feel? Listen, the church of Christ is a family. It's not like a family. It is a family. We are brothers and sisters And we have a long way to go in sanctification and living out all of that. But that is the truth of who we are. Despite all of the differences we have, and listen, throughout all of eternity, the church has had a lot of differences. Think of the church in Philippi and think of the the famous Philippian three that we'll call them. Think of the three people that we find in the book of Acts who get saved in the church of Philippi. You have someone who came to Christ largely because of an earthquake and he was a jailer and he was about to kill himself because he thought his inmates had gotten away. A jailer is now in the church. And then you have a demon-possessed girl who foretold the future by demonic powers and then was delivered from those forces. And then you have a woman named Lydia. And all it really says about her is that she was uh, pretty well-to-do and the Lord opened her heart to Jesus Christ. How different would that look, these three people sitting next together in a pew? But that is the church and that is the church here as well. There truly is only one church. 1 Corinthians 12 says, if you are in Christ, you have been baptized into the one spirit of Christ. Ephesians 4, 5 declares there is one faith. There is 
one Lord, there is one baptism. Therefore, what we have in common, though it may not feel like it in a moment, is truly greater than all of our differences. It means that what should gather us together should not be the way we dress. It shouldn't be our manner of talking. It shouldn't be our income. It shouldn't be our skin color. It shouldn't be what our past life was like. What we have in common is Christ. But let's get a little deeper than that and ask, what's the basis of our unity? What's the true foundation? There's one of two errors that have commonly been made throughout church history. And the first is to make our unity too narrow. And we make our unity too narrow when we introduce any shepherd other than Christ as the one who is the shepherd of his church. You see this in the New Testament. Some say, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow this preacher. I follow that preacher. I follow the Pope. No, there is one head of the church and it is Christ Jesus. We make it too narrow if we introduce anyone on the level of Christ or above Christ. But so too, we make it too broad when we say anyone who claims to be a Christian is a member of the church. This is not meant to be taken in an uncharitable way, but in a truthful way. We know from the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 7 that many will say, Lord, Lord, and not truly be his people. So it's not just words apart from any actions. It's not just a profession, but it is a true possession of Christ. Or it would probably be more true to say of being possessed by Christ, to be his flock. Indeed, the basis of our unity is Jesus Christ himself. And not just him in the abstract, but him and what he did as our good shepherd. So let's talk next about the foundation, the true foundation of our unity, which is the oneness of the heart of our good shepherd. It is that as we look at Christ, we're going to find one who in himself is not divided, but he is utterly pure in heart. He has one true desire. His heart is one. And so it is in him and in his relationships that we find the true basis and foundation for our unity together. Look at uh, verse 17 through 18 with me. The Lord Jesus says, For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Lord Jesus says, he begins by saying, for this reason, the father loves the son. Now let's pause for a second and ask, what does it mean? What does Jesus mean by the words he's using here? Is Jesus saying the father started loving the son because the son laid down his life? 
that would be kind of a natural reading if we didn't read it in the context of the rest of Scripture. But no, we know that's not actually possible. John 17 verse 24 tells us of the love the Father had for the Son before the foundations of the world. That forever, as we come to Christ and we see the love of Christ, we are entering into a forever love. A love that has no beginning. A love that was before any speck of matter even existed in this universe. And as far back in time as you could possibly go before time was, the Father was loving the Son in the unity of the Spirit. So as we come to the love between the Father and the Son, we come to a love, if you think about it, a love that began forever ago, if that's a way we can speak, We come to love that we cannot fully comprehend it, right? We can't get our arms all the way around it. It is in one sense incomprehensible, but the glorious truth of our God is he has revealed himself to us. And so while we cannot fully comprehend it, we can begin as we look to Christ, we can begin to apprehend it to start to feel our arms around this infinite love of Christ. The reason for our unity is the unbroken love between the Father and the Son. And this love, we could say so many things about it, but just in these verses, we see at least four things. We see first that this is a displayed love. Jesus says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus says, the father loves me. You want to know why? You want to know the reason? You want to know the display of it? I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He says, not that this is the starting point of the love between the father and the son, but in God's grace, this is the expression of their love. In the cross of Christ, we have the fullest expression of the magnitude of the love of God. What could we say the love of God is like? We could say it reaches to the heavens. We could say it's as vast as the oceans. We could say that there's nothing that could contain it in this world. But if you want to know what the love of God is like expressed in history, look at the cross of Christ. The Bible says that God is love. But it doesn't stop there. It says, and in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. God is love and the focus, focal point of that love is the son of God on the cross, staying there for sinners. It is a displayed love. And not only is it a displayed love, but it is a self-giving and sacrificial love. He says, I lay it down. I lay it down for you. 
how many of the things we do in life are truly for the sake of others? How many of the servant acts that I commit during the week am I really thinking, I hope they do this because they saw me do that. I'll do this for you if you do that for me. But not so with Christ. He truly laid down his life for the sake of others. His love, his love is true love, which is for the sake of others. He gave away himself for the sake of his people. And it's not just self-giving in the abstract, but it's hanging on the cross where he suffered the wrath that my sin and that if you be in Christ, your sin deserved. He there on that cross in his body bore our sins so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We all long for love, for a true love. I think it's, I think it's typical through life to go through different stages and they come at different points for different ones of us, but we, we long for maybe the love of a woman or the love of a man. If they just loved me, I would feel whole. Or we long to be part of that group that if I, if I belong to that group of friends, I wouldn't be bored ever. I wouldn't ever have to wonder, am I alone? Do people love me? If just I had those friends, we love for the affection of our kids or for our kids to obey us in the right way. We long for those things. But I want to ask you, as you long and you look for it in those relationships, who has ever loved you like this? that he would lay down his life for you? Jesus Christ in John chapter 13, knowing the time, there was a week before he would hang on that cross. John 13 verse one says, and having loved his own, he loved them until the very end. He washed their feet. Has anyone ever loved you like this perfectly to the very end? No one can except Jesus Christ. And if you have the love of Jesus Christ, he won't turn his back. He won't stop it. He'll faithfully fulfill his love. This is a chosen love. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. One might think the savior of the world hanging on an instrument of torture of the capital punishment from the state. One might think that is a terrible tragedy of things gone wrong. That was mission failure. That was Christ doing his best, but coming up short. The Lord Jesus says, no, no, no. I chose this. And so while people made real choices to unjustly try him, to lie about him, to make up stories, to have a kangaroo court in the middle of the night, 
While all those things were true and real choices, do you know what was ultimately true? That all of these things happen according to the plan of God. The book of Acts. Jesus Christ chose this. Twice he says it. I have authority. I lay down, I take up. I lay down, I take up. This is ultimately an obedient love to the father. He says, I'm doing this all because the charge was given to me from my father. And so I'm willingly, lovingly, obediently doing this. Do you have a tendency? And some of us, man, just, just it seems the way God made us. We have a tendency to doubt the love of God. I know he loves them, but I know me. (laughs) Do you have a tendency to doubt God's love? Look at the cross. He chose this for you. Even before the foundations of the world, God chose us in Christ. Ephesians 1, 4 says. Do you ever find yourself now being a Christian as if it were almost impossible to forgive what somebody did to you. And let's be real. Those situations in life happen, right? And they're they're not minuscule, small debts. They're real. They hurt. The story of the parable of the unforgiving servant Jesus tells, and it's a story of a servant who owes something like the equivalent of $30 million to his master. And he just begs his master. And he says, please, please, I'll sell my family into slavery. Just give me a little more time. And his master says, it's forgiven. And then if you know this story, he goes and he finds someone on the street after being forgiven. And this person owes him some money. And we read the amount. And since the amount is from 2,000 years ago, we don't always translate it into our heads. And he starts choking out this person. He says, you owe me money. And the guy says to him, give me a little more time. And this person being forgiven, like $30 million, puts his hands around the guy's neck and starts choking him out. And some servants of the master who forgave him go back to the master and tell him what they saw. And he says, oh. And so the master takes him and he says, you didn't show mercy. Now back to the amount that the guy owed him. We often think, I can't believe the guy would do that for a couple of bucks. But what's interesting about this story is this was probably about a half year's wages. Depending where you work, what you do, this is between twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. That would make a lot of difference to be paid back in a moment. These are real debts. If you find it hard to forgive someone else, don't pretend like it's nothing, but look at the cross. Say this is a big deal, and this big deal is nothing in comparison to the cross. The logic of the gospel goes like this. Christ loves us and has loved us. And he's given us everything. Therefore, respond like this. He doesn't say, I'll love you like this if you do that. 
He says, no, this is who you truly are. And so he loves his own disciples to the end and he says to them, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. We see it in the life of Stephen. As he was being stoned unjustly by those who reject Christ, what did he say? Like his Lord Jesus, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. In 1 John, it tells us, if he so loved us, we ought to love the brethren. We need to lay down our lives for the sake of our brothers and our sisters. Number four, it is an undying love. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Those who know the original language as well point out the word that we get in our English Bibles, that is an emphatic word. It's a word that points all purpose towards itself in the sentence. Jesus laid down his life that he might take it up again. In order that. So we can say that Jesus's death can never be separated from his resurrection. There is a union in his church and there is a union in his church and a unity in his church because there is a unity in the Godhead and because there's a unity in his death and in his resurrection. Never separate these two things because Jesus never separates them because the Bible never separates them. Romans 4 says that he was delivered up for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. What this means is Jesus didn't simply die a sad death and now we should look at that and sentimentally try to follow him. No, it means that there is true victory and there is true hope and there is true joy and there is true peace with God. This is an undying love. Listen, all other loves begin. They begin at some point. Maybe your story with your spouse is that you forever loved each other. But we're mere mortals. We didn't forever love each other. All other loves began, and those are good gifts, but also all other loves will end. All other loves will die but not so with the love of Christ. Because you see, Christ died, but he rose again. And he will ever live. He will never die again. So we have the assurance that though everyone else might forsake us, though others might not forsake us, but they'll pass away. The love of Christ will never pass away. And so the church is united. There is truly only one flock and we only have one shepherd, Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's the basis of our unity. Most especially seen in his displayed, self-giving, self-sacrificial, chosen 
in undying love, seen in his life and his death and his resurrection. All other under shepherds, they gather under him and they only point towards him. I love in Psalm 23, verse four, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. And I love as Derek Kidner in his commentary on the Psalm says, at this point, all other shepherds turn back. I'm gonna lose my life for a sheep. I can buy another sheep. Jesus says, I'll walk through the valley and I know I'll die. But he'll rise again. The undying love of Christ. So Jesus, after proclaiming the unity of his flock and the unity of his heart and the unity of mind between him and the Father, after declaring all that unity, what happens? Well, naturally, a division arises. Look at me, uh, look with me at verses 19 through 21. There was again a division among the Jews. Jesus has a tendency of doing this in the Gospel of John. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who, ha- who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Here we come to the test of unity. So why the division? Why after all this talk of unity, is there a division? Well, the scriptures tell us there was a division because of these words. Because of the words of Jesus, there arises a division a splitting, a separating. And so it still is today. Listen, people are fine in our culture with vague thoughts about Jesus. You can use all the superlatives in the world about Jesus as long as you're kind of vague about him. People can be fine even with some of the actions of Jesus. We love that he served. We love that he loved. But once you look at his true words, once you understand why he was doing the things he was doing, there arises division. Some in this crowd will reject him and some will accept him. But listen, the unity of the flock is not severed in this. It is only clarified. Those who went away were not of him. They heard his words and they refused to come to him. Jesus said, I will never reject any who come to me, but I'll I'll bring them in. And he says, all my sheep will listen to my voice and they will come to me. And so even as we see a division among this crowd, are we to think the unity of God's flock is severed? No, it's only illuminated. The test of unity is not what you think about someone else. 
The test of unity is not our preferences. The test of unity is not the way we dress, not the Bible version that we use. The test of unity is what you do with Jesus and how you have been shaped by his love. So what do you do with his words? What do you do with the words of Jesus? Do you hear them? All of them. You must love that person. You must forgive. You must cut off your hand. You must gouge out your eye. What do you do with the things that the world says? You can't say that. That from the beginning, he made them male and female. Matthew 19, quoting Genesis. That we can't hold on to anger. That vengeance isn't ours. What do you do with the words of Jesus? What you do with the words of Jesus shows, are you in his flock? Are you in the one flock under the one shepherd? Do you stand with Christ when people will try to separate him from his words? I know that says that in the Bible, but really can that be a saying of Jesus? Do you care about his words? Do they matter to you? Or are they, a, are they a religious checklist? And so you get through the Bible again and you build your hope, you build your hope on nothing less than your own righteousness. Or do you care about his words? A.W. Tozer says, the Lord reveals his words to those who most care. Is Jeremiah's weeping that the Lord sees and he reveals his words to him. It's Daniel's prolonged fasting to which God sends an angel and assures him. Do you care about the voice of your shepherd? Are you Christ-like and long-suffering with the doubting and the strain? I know these are choppy waters we start to get into. There are some who profess to be Christians who in the final analysis will not be. So what are we to do with that? Well, the book of Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. We're to think of how how did Jesus deal with me? He was long-suffering. He didn't dip out at the first sign of my weakness. And we too, we must not be quick to rush to judgments. But what do we do? We stand with Christ and we say, Lord Jesus, teach me to love as you have loved. We're not, we're not so bold in our culture. Many probably don't even believe in demons but do you hear the second half of what they say? Why listen to him? Why do you need to hear the word of God? Why do you need to study his word? Why do you need to store it up in your heart? What's the point? There's a lot of good truths out there. But others, others hear, others see. Why is it? 
Because they were raised by better families? No. Because they decided to get their act together sooner? No. It's because as this chapter began with Jesus healing a blind man, they themselves have been healed of their blindness. So what I want to do to close out our time together is I want to think a little bit about how we can truly apply this. I'm going to read to you and I want to ask you to close your eyes and receive these words of Colossians 3. Jesus said, I lay down my life. I take it up again. In Colossians 3, the apostle Paul gives us the therefore of Jesus laying down his life. How should we now live? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. How can we show we are one in Christ? What, what do we do if we see a brother or sister strain? What's the test of our unity in Christ? If love came through death, then what is my right response to work for true unity? 
Christ, he said, I received this charge from the Father. Is there something you know of that God's living and active word pierced your heart? Something you know you must do from his word. Are we putting our belonging to Christ's family before all other belongings? There aren't easy answers to these questions. But as we look to Christ, as we have a sure word, as his spirit indwells us, he will lead us and he will guide us. And I want to remind you of this. Jesus, Jesus, in John 17, the most extended prayer we have of our Lord, he prayed for you and he prayed for me. He prayed for us. He said, Father, I pray that they may be one, even as you and I are one. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Lord, if there be one flock and one shepherd, which you say there there is only, we ask God by your Holy Spirit, through your word, that you would work this out among us. Lord, we ask that, as Colossians said, Christ Jesus, you would be all and in all in our church. Would we put nothing ahead of the unity that we have in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Lord, I ask that we would put off the old self, that we would put on Christ, And thank you, Lord, as we are working out our salvation, that you already call us holy and beloved. Jesus Christ, we praise you that you laid down your life, that you would take it up again. And Lord, we say, help us to lay down our lives because we know they will be taken up again. We love you, Lord. Would we worship you as your word richly dwells in us now. In Christ's name, amen.